Section 22 of The Natural History, Volume 7, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Book 35 An Account of Paintings and Colours. Chapter 1 The Honour Attached to Painters. I have now given a considerable length an account of the nature of metals which constitute our wealth, and of the substances that are derived from them, so connecting my various subjects as at the same time to describe an immense number of medicinal compositions which they furnish, the mysteries thrown upon them by the druggists, and the tedious minute of the arts of chasing and statuary and of dyeing. It remains for me to describe the various kinds of earths and stones, a still more extensive series of subjects, each of which has been treated of by the Greeks, more particularly in a great number of volumes. For my own part, I propose to employ a due degree of brevity, at the same time meaning nothing that is necessary or that is a product of nature. I shall begin then with what still remains to be said with reference to painting, an art which was formerly illustrious when it was held in esteem both by kings and peoples, and ennobling those whom it deigned to transmit a posterity. But at the present day it is completely banished in favour of marble and even gold. For not only are whole walls now covered with marble, but the marble itself is carved out, or else marquitted, so as to represent objects and animals of various kinds. No longer now are we satisfied with formal comparisons of marble, or with slabs extended like so many mountains in our chambers. But we must begin to paint the very stone itself, this art was invented in the reign of Claudius, but it was in the time of Miro that we discovered the method of inserting in marble spots that do not belong to it, and so varying its uniformity, and this for the purpose of representing the marble of Numidia, variegated with ovals, and that of Sineda, veined with purple, just in fact as luxury might have willed that nature should produce them. Such are our resources when the quarries fail us and latterly ceases not to busy itself in order that as much as possible may be lost whenever a conflagration happens. Chapter 2. The Honour Attached to Portraits Correct portraits of individuals were formerly transmitted to future ages by painting, but this is now completely fallen into desitude. Brazen shields are now set up, and silver faces with only some obscure traces of countenance. The very heads, too, of statues are changed, a thing that has given rise before, now, to many a current sarcastic line. So true it is that people prefer showing off the valuable material to having a faithful likeness. And yet, at the same time, we tapestry the walls of our galleries with old pictures and we prize the portraits of strangers, whilst to those made in honour of ourselves, we esteem them only for the value of the material, for some air to break up and melt and so forestall the noose and slip knot of the thief. Thus it is that we possess the portraits of no living individuals, and leave behind us the pictures of our wealth, not of our persons. And yet the very same persons adorn the palestra and the anointing room with portraits of athletes, and both hang up in their chamber and carry about them a likeness of Epicurus. On the twentieth day of each moon they celebrate his birthday by a sacrifice, and keep his festival, known as the Bacchus, every month, and these two people who wish to live without being known. 
So it is, most assuredly, our indolence has lost sight of the arts, and since our minds are destitute of any characteristic features, those of our bodies are neglected also. But on the contrary, in the days of our ancestors, it was these that were to be seen in their halls, and not statues made by foreign artists, or work in bronze or marble. Portraits modelled in wax were arranged, each in its separate niche, to be always in readiness to accompany the funeral processions of the family, occasions on which every member of the family that had ever existed was always present. The pedigree, too, of the individual was traced in lines upon each of these coloured portraits. Their monument rooms, too, were filled with archives and memoirs, stating what each had done when holding the magistracy. On the outside, again, of their houses, and around the threshold of their doors were placed other statues of those mighty spirits. In the spoils of the enemy there affixed memorials which a purchaser even was not allowed to displace, so that the very house continued to triumph, even after it had changed its master. A powerful stimulus to emulation this, when the walls each day reproached an unwarlike owner for having thus intruded upon the triumphs of another. There is still extant an address by the orator Masala, full of indignation, in which he forbids that there should be inserted among the images of his family any of those of the stranger race of the Levini. It was the same feeling, too, that extorted from old Masala these compilations of his on the families of Rome when upon passing through the hall of Scipio Pomponianus, he observed that in consequence of a testamentary adoption, the Salvidos, for that had been their surname, to the disgrace of the Africani, had surreptitiously contrived to assume the name of the Scipios. But the Messalas must pardon me if I remark that to lay a claim, though an untruthful one, to the statues of illustrious men shows some love for their virtues and as much more honourable than to have such a character as to merit that no one should wish to claim them. There is a new invention, too, which we must not omit to notice. Not only do we consecrate in our libraries, in gold or silver, or at all events, in bronze, those whom immortal spirits hold converse with us in those places, but we even go so far as to reproduce the ideal of features, or remembrance of which had ceased to exist and our regrets give existence to likenesses that have not been transmitted to us, as in the case of Homer, for example. And indeed, it is my opinion, that nothing can be a greater proof of having achieved success in life than a lasting desire on the part of one's fellow men to know what one's features were. This practice of grouping portraits was first introduced at Rome by Asinius Pollio, who was also the first to establish a public library, and so made the works of genius the property of the public. We have the kings of Alexandria and of Pergamus, who had so energetically rivaled each other in forming libraries, had previously introduced this practice, I cannot so easily say. That a strong passion for portraits formerly existed is attested both by Atticus, the friend of Cicero, who wrote a work on this subject, and by M. Varro, who conceived the very liberal idea of inserting, by some means or other, in his numerous volumes, the portraits of seven hundred individuals. As he could not bear the idea, that all traces of their features should be lost, or that the lapse of centuries should get the better of mankind. Thus, was he the inventor of a benefit to his fellow men, that might have been envied by the gods themselves, for not only did he confer upon them immortality, but he transmitted them, too, to all parts of the earth, so that everywhere it might be possible for them to be present, and for each to occupy his niche. This service, too, Pharaoh conferred upon persons who were 
no members of his own family. Chapter 3 3. When shields were first invested with portraits upon them, and when they were first erected in public. So far as I can learn, Appius Claudius, who was consul with P. Servilius in the year of the city 259, was the first to dedicate shields in the honour of his own family in a sacred or public place. For he placed representations of his ancestors in the temple of Bologna, and desired that they might be erected in an elevated spot, so as to be seen, and the inscriptions reciting their honours read. A truly graceful device, more particularly when a multitude of children, represented by so many tiny figures, displays those germs, as it were, which are destined to continue the line. Shields such as these, no one could look at without feeling a pleasure and lively interest. Chapter 4 When these shields were first placed in private houses. More recently, M. Emilius, who was consul with Quintus Lutietus, not only erected these shields in the Emilian Basilica, but in his own house as well, in doing which he followed a truly warlike example, for in fact, these portraits were represented on bucklers similar to those used in the Trojan War, and hence it is that these shields received their present name of clape, and not, as the perverse subtleties of the grammarians will have it, from the word cluo. It was an abundant motive of valor when upon each shield was represented the features of him who had borne it. The Carthaginians used to make both their bucklers and their portraits of gold, and to carry them with them in the camp. At all events, Marcius, the avenger of the Scipios in Spain, found one of these kind on capturing the camp of Hasdrubal, and it was on this same buckler that remained suspended over the gate of the Capitoline Temple until the time when it was first burnt. Indeed, in the days of our ancestors, so assured was the safety of these shields that it has been a subject of remark in the consulship of M. Manlius and Q. Fulvius in the year of the city, 575. M. Alfudius, who had given security for the safety of the capital, informed the Senate that the bucklers there which, for some lustre, had been assessed as copper, when reality made of silver. Chapter 5 The Commencement of the Art of Painting Monochrome Paintings, the Earliest Painters We have no certain knowledge as to the commencement of the art of painting, nor does this inquiry fall under our consideration. The Egyptians assert that it was invented among themselves 6,000 years before it passed into Greece, a vain boast, it is very evident. As to the Greeks, some say that it was invented in Sicyon, others at Corinth. But they all agree that it originated in tracing lines around the human shadow. The first stage of the art, they say, was this. The second stage being the employment of single colours, a process known as monochromaton. After it had become more complicated, and which is still in use at the present day. The invention of line drawing has been assigned to Philocles, the Egyptian, or to Clinthus of Corinth. The first who practised this line drawing were Eridices, the Corinthian, and Telephanes, the Sicyonian, artists who, without making use of any colours, shaded the interior of the outline by drawing lines. Hence, it was a custom with them to add to the picture the name of the person represented. Euphantus, the Corinthian, was the first to employ colours upon these pictures, made, it is said, of broken earthenware, reduced to powder. We shall show on a future occasion that it was a different artist of the same name 
who according to Cornelius Nepos, came to Italy with Demaratus, the father of the Roman king, Tarquinus Parisis, on his flight from Corinth to escape the violence of the tyrant, Cypselus. Chapter 6. The Antiquity of Painting in Italy. But already, in fact, had the art of painting been perfectly developed in Italy. At all events, there are extant in the temples of Ardea, at this day, paintings of greater antiquity than Rome itself, in which, in my opinion, nothing is more marvellous than that they should have remained so long unprotected by a roof, and yet preserving their freshness. At Lanuvium, too, it is the same, where we see an Atalanta and a Helena, without drapery, close together, and painted by the same artist. They are both of the greatest beauty, the former being evidently the figure of a virgin, and they still remain uninjured, though the temple is in ruins. The emperor Caius, inflamed with lustfulness, attempted to have them removed, but the nature of the plaster would not admit of it. There are in existence at care some paintings of a still higher antiquity. Whoever carefully examines them will be forced to admit that no art has arrived more speedily at perfection, seeing that it evidently was not in existence at the time of the Trojan War. Chapter 7 4. Roman Painters Among the Romans, too, this art very soon rose into esteem, for it was from it that the Fabi, a most illustrious family, derived their surname of Pictor. Indeed, the first of the family who bore it, himself, painted the Temple of Salus in the year of the city, 450, a work which lasted to our own times, but was destroyed when the temple was burnt in the reign of Claudius. Next in celebrity were the paintings of the poet Bacuvius in the Temple of Hercules, situated in the Cattle Market. He was a son of the sister of Aeneas, and the fame of the art was enhanced at Rome by the success of the artists on the stage. After this period, the art was no longer practiced by men of rank, unless indeed we would make reference to Turpilius in our own times, a native of Venetia, and of equestrian rank several whose beautiful works are still in existence at Verona. He painted too with his left hand, a thing never known to have been done by anyone before. Tertius Labio, a person of Praetorian rank, who had been formerly proconsul of the province of Gallia Narbonensis, and who lately died at a very advanced age, used to pride himself upon the little pictures which he executed, but it only caused him to be ridiculed and sneered at. I must not admit, too, to mention a celebrated consultation upon the subject of painting which was held by the same persons of the highest rank. Cupidius, who had been honoured with a consulship and a triumph, and who had been named by the dictator Caesar as co-heir with Augustus, had a grandson, who had been dumb from his birth, the orator Messala, to whose family his grandmother belonged, recommended that he should be brought up as a painter a proposal which was also approved of by the late Emperor Augustus. He died, however, in his youth, after having made great progress in the art, but the high estimation in which painting came to be held at Rome was principally due, in my opinion, to M. Valerius Maximus Messala, who in the year of the city, 490, was the first to exhibit a painting to the public, a picture, namely, of the battle in which he had defeated the Carthaginians and Hero in Sicily, upon one side of the Curia Hostilia. The same thing was done, too, by El Scipio, 
who placed in the capital a painting of the victory which he had gained in Asia. But his brother Africanus, it is said, was offended at it, and not without reason, for his son had been taken prisoner in the battle. Lucius Hostilius Mancinus, too, who had been the first to enter Carthage at the final attack, gave a very similar offence to Amelianus, by exposing the form a painting of that city and the attack upon it, he himself standing near the picture and ascribing to the spectators the various details of the siege, a piece of complacence which secured him the consulship at the ensuing comitia. The stage too, which was erected for the games, celebrated by Claudius Pulcher, brought the art of painting into great admiration. It may be observed that the ravens were so deceived by the resemblance as to light upon the decorations which were painted in imitation of tiles. Chapter 8 At what period foreign paintings were first introduced at Rome? The highest estimation in which the paintings of foreigners were held at Rome commenced with Lucius Mummius, who from his victories acquired the surname of Archiochus, for upon the sale of the spoil on that occasion King Attalus, having purchased at the price of 6,000 denarii a painting of Father Liber by Aristides, Momius, feeling surprised at the price and suspecting that there might be some merit in it, of which he himself was unaware, in spite of the complaints of Attalus, broke off the bargain and had the picture placed in the Temple of Ceres. The first instance I conceive of a foreign painting being publicly exhibited at Rome. After this, I find, it became a common practice to exhibit foreign pictures in the Forum, for it was to this circumstance that we are indebted for a joke of the orator classes. While pleading below the old shops, he was interrupted by a witness who had been summoned with the question, Tell me then, Crassus, what do you take me to be? Very much like him, answered he, pointing to the figure of a Gaul in a pitcher, thrusting out his tongue in a very unbecoming manner. It was in the forum, too, that was placed the picture of the old shepherd leaning on his staff, respecting which, when the envoy of the Teutons was asked what he thought was the value of it, he made answer that he would rather not have the original, even, at a gift. Chapter 9 At what period paintings were first held in high esteem at Rome, and from what causes? But it was the dictator Caesar that first brought the public exhibition of pictures into such high estimation, by consecrating an Ajax and a Medina before the temple of Venus Genetrix. After him, there was M. Agrippa, a man who was naturally more attached to rustic simplicity than to refinement. Still, however, we have a magnificent oration of his, and one well worthy of the greatest of our citizens. On the advantage of exhibiting in public all pictures and statues, a practice which we would have been far preferable to sending them into banishment at our country homes. Severe as he was in his tastes, he paid the people of Sizius twelve hundred thousand sesteres for two paintings, an Ajax and a Venus. He also ordered small paintings to be set in marble in the very hottest part of his warm baths, where they remained until they were removed a short time since, when the building was repaired. Chapter 10 what pictures the emperors have exhibited in public. The late Emperor Augustus did more than all the others, for he placed in the most conspicuous part of his forum two pictures representing war and triumph. He also placed in the temple of his father, Caesar, a picture of the Castors, and won a victory, in addition to those which we shall mention in our account of the works of the different artists. 
he also inserted two pictures in the wall of the curia, which he consecrated in the comitium, one of which was a Nemea, seated upon a lion and bearing a palm in her hand. Close to her is an old man, standing with a staff, and above his head hangs a picture of a chariot with two horses. Nicurius has written upon this picture that he inburned it, such being the word he has employed. The second picture, the thing to be chiefly admired, is a resemblance that the youth bears to the old man, his father, allowing, of course, for the difference in age. Above them soars an eagle, which grasps a dragon in its talons. Philocaris attests that he is the author of this work, an instance, if we only consider it, of the mighty power wielded by the pictorial art. For here, thanks to Philocaris, the senate of the Roman people, age after age, has before its eyes Glossian and his son Aristobus, persons who otherwise have been altogether unknown. The emperor Tiberius, too, a prince who was by no means very gracious, has exhibited in the temple dedicated by him in his turn to Augustus several pictures which we shall describe hereafter. End of section 22